This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you please turn in your Bibles tonight to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39, and we will look tonight at the first 20 verses. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house. And all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he, did, thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house and has committed to me has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and fled and ran outside. So it was when she saw that he he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. And she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came into me to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him, and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this evening, I pray that you would ready our hearts by the illumination of your Holy Spirit to receive it. That we would see in Joseph's sufferings and Joseph's persecutions, Christ who suffered for us, who fulfilled all righteousness in our place, who did not fall in the face of temptation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had to suffer for doing the right thing? Because we live in a fallen and sinful and evil world, there will come times of injustice. Not injustice in the modern revised sense where injustice is whatever can be used to redistribute wealth and power, but actual injustice according to God's standards where rather than the good being done, and celebrated, and evil resisted and punished, evil is done, and the good is punished. As we continue on in the last major act of Genesis, we will now focus for quite some time in the life and times of Joseph. Joseph is a bit different from a lot of the patriarchs we have seen in Genesis. He clearly stands in something of a contrast from them. In the others, Adam... Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah from last time. The moral presentation and assessment of Joseph is almost entirely positive. When we first looked at Joseph a few weeks ago, we saw him perhaps being unwise and lording over his brothers the things he had heard in his dreams, but the dreams were from the Lord. They were according to God's purposes. Joseph is generally portrayed in Genesis as a righteous man who suffers for righteousness' sake. Now, this is not, of course, as I began to unpack before, an accident. Joseph is a type of Christ. His life is basically a lived drama that points to the coming Messiah, the Savior of Israel and the world. But the last we saw of Joseph... He was in a very precarious position. While his brothers plotted to kill him initially, he got a better deal than that, but not much better. At Judah's suggestion, he was sold to a passing caravan of Ishmaelite traders on the way to Egypt. Now as we come to chapter 39, he is in Egypt. How do things go for him? What will happen now that he is a stranger in a strange land? We will look at the beginning of Joseph's time in Egypt tonight in three points. First, there is a rise in verses 1 through 6. Though Joseph is in a precarious position as a foreign slave in Egypt, God is with him and helps him. Second, resistance in verses 7 through 12. We see that with Joseph's success comes temptation, but Joseph must uphold righteousness. And then third, retaliation in verses 13 through 20. Because Joseph upholds righteousness, he will be punished. So rise, resistance, retaliation, those are our points for tonight. So first we see Joseph's rise in verses 1 through 6. 
We return to the narrative of Joseph with the news that he is taken to Egypt. And he was bought by Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Part of God's hand of provision for Joseph was that there was a lot of places the slave could end up, and a lot of them were bad. A lot of them were violent and dangerous places. But Joseph is going to be, at least for a time, a household slave in the house of an important man. It's probably a pretty good gig if one does the job well. And with God's help, Joseph does the job well. This is what we see in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. We often think of slavery in terms of modern portrayals of its American counterpart, where slaves were strictly property and had no rights or opportunities. In the ancient world, a large portion of the population, perhaps a third or more, were slaves. And yes, many slaves in that day were abused and mistreated, but some did actually attain relatively high and prominent positions particularly in the houses of people who were high and prominent in society themselves. So the Lord is with Joseph, puts him in a good place, causes his efforts to prosper. And Potiphar takes notice of this. He sees that Joseph is a good worker. He sees that things committed to Joseph's care are taken care of and go well. And Potiphar likes this. And so he gives Joseph a promotion. He makes him the overseer, the steward, the butler, basically, of his house. Basically, next to Potiphar himself, Joseph is the one in charge of Potiphar's household business. Joseph runs things and takes care of things, while Potiphar is off doing whatever the captain of the guard does. And the Lord blesses Potiphar's house because Joseph is in care of it. This is an example of a Christian and Reformed doctrine that is true, but doesn't get a lot of attention. And that is the doctrine of providence. It is one of the two ways to use the words of our catechism, along with creation, that God executes his decrees. Creation is how God made things, and providence is how God upholds and rules over them comprehensively. It is God's preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. The doctrine of providence tends to be neglected. Even many Christians think of God as distant and uninvolved in the minute details of our lives and the operations of this world. But there is a still more neglected doctrine within this doctrine of providence concerning its purpose. Why does God so uphold and rule and govern this world and his creatures? Well, of course, the major reason, the biggest reason for everything is his own glory. But an additional detail of this is something that we see in chapter 5, article 7 of the Westminster Confession. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures... So after a most special manner, it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. This is taken from scriptures such as Romans 8.28. We know that God 
And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. You probably know that verse. What it tells us is that the world and God's ordering of it and work in it is for his glory, but also for the good of his people, for the good of his particular people over and against others. Now, this doesn't mean that life is easy or free of difficulty for Christians. It is often very difficult, as much of this world is under the domain of Satan. But ultimately, all things serve God's purposes for his glory and the good of his people. And this whole ordeal of Joseph in Egypt is an illustration of this. Though Joseph is a slave, though Joseph has been betrayed by his brothers, though he is this stranger in a strange land, enslaved to enemies, God will bless him and prosper him and even order the socio-political affairs of Egypt for the good of Joseph and ultimately for the good of the house of Israel, which was the church the visible expression of God's people on the earth at that time. But this is also true in our world today. Though we face resistance and opposition, and though societies and governments and employers set themselves against Christ and his church, all things ultimately work for his glory and for our good. All of the world, all of the created order, that is what it is for. And the order and success and prosperity of Potiphar's house is for the good of one Hebrew slave who resides within it. Things go so well under Joseph's watch that Potiphar doesn't have to worry about anything. Verse 7 says that, he did not know what he had except the bread he ate. That's not verse 7, that is verse 6. Sorry. Everything was in place and taken care of in Potiphar's house because God allowed Joseph to prosper. But then we also get one last line at the end of verse 6 that indicates trouble to come. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And this brings us to our second point. After the rise, we come to resistance in verses 7 through 12. So Joseph is a good-looking and successful young man, about as much as one can be as a foreign slave in Egypt. And that is apparently not lost on Potiphar's wife. So much so that she makes advances on Joseph. She wants him to lie with her. She wants to commit adultery against her husband with Joseph. Now, practically speaking, there is a not insignificant chance that Joseph could have done this and probably got away with it, at least in worldly terms. Potiphar was the captain of the guard. He was off and away doing his job, fighting wars and such. And all day, every day, Joseph was working in Potiphar's house. This was Egypt, after all, a pagan land where pagan gods were worshipped and likely all kinds of sexual licentiousness that we saw before with the Canaanites, with Judah and Tamar, also probably applied in Egypt. 
Even as we see in our day, it seems that the wealthy and the powerful and the influential are often unfaithful in their homes and families. It's very hard to balance worldly success and power with family fidelity. But Joseph is not willing to give in to the wife's scheme. He is very clear about it. He will not do this sin against his master Potiphar. Potiphar has given him everything, placed him in charge of everything. The only thing that was off limits to Joseph was Potiphar's wife. It would be treachery. It would be treason to do this wickedness against him. But even more so, this was an evil and wickedness against God. And this is seen in Joseph's final statement. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph knows something that we all know and should always keep before us. Whatever sins we think we might commit in private, whatever sins we think we can get away with, God sees and knows them all. Whatever sins we might commit against other people, they are first and foremost sins against God. Joseph refuses her advance. He doesn't only have to do it once. You see in verse 10 that he has to do this repeatedly, day in and day out. Surely had to be difficult for him. Typically, the proper response of a man of God in such a situation where he's being tempted to adultery is to remove himself from the situation, put away the temptation at its source, to not keep company with those who would commit sexual immorality, to not be in a position to be morally compromised. But Joseph doesn't have that luxury. Joseph is a slave. He has to stay and live and work in the house of Potiphar. He is not free to leave. He, <clears throat> he is not free to go away. He's not free to not have to interact with Potiphar's wife. He must undergo this temptation day in and day out. And yet, he does not give in. He shows restraint. He shows character. He knows that while he is in a pagan land where maybe this kind of sexual immorality might be popular and acceptable, he does not belong to that land. He does not belong to the city of man and its evil lusts and pleasures. He belongs to God, and his sins will be known to God. Again, rather uniquely in Genesis, Joseph is demonstrating character and integrity and Perhaps the worst situation we have seen yet. His forefathers had taken multiple wives. They seemed to have a problem resisting the allure of women beyond what God designed and intended. His brothers used the prospect of intermarriage with the Canaanites to slaughter them. His older brother Judah had engaged in Canaanite cult prostitution. Where all those others would have fallen, Joseph here stands. But this is not merely to show us Joseph's moral character. It does, but it does more than that. As Joseph is a type of Christ, 
Joseph in his endurance of this temptation points us to Christ's temptations, which he endured during his time on this earth. Not only did Jesus face all the temptations to sin, the living on this world bring, but just as Joseph had to face down the adulteress, was offered all that she could give and resisted, Jesus faced down Satan himself who offered him the whole world. Jesus withstood Satan. As a part of his active obedience, his keeping the law in the place of sinners who have broken it, Jesus endured all temptations in the place of those who gave in, so that those who have not endured temptation, or yeah, those who have not endured through temptation might be forgiven and redeemed. But Joseph does also model for us how we ought to respond to temptation. When we are tempted, and even if we are unable to flee the source of temptation, we should if we can, but we can't always, we must keep ever before us that God sees and knows all our sins, even the ones we do in secret. And if we give in to the temptation, we sin not only against other people, but most of all against him. But just because Joseph does the right thing doesn't mean that he is going to be rewarded for it. Potiphar's wife continues to press to the point where in verse 11 and following, she basically tries to trap him. She wants Joseph so badly that even as he's doing his best to avoid her, she catches him by his clothes. And as he leaves, as he runs away, as he should, she holds on and has one of his garments in her hand. Now the hammer is going to fall. After the rise and resistance, we come to retaliation in verses 13 through 20. It is quite remarkable and truly a testament to the depths of evil that fallen and sinful humanity can reach to see how people react when their base evil desires and lusts are denied. So Potiphar's wife has had enough. She has been denied for the last time. She will not take such insolence and wounding of her pride at the hands of a slave. Perhaps even she feels a slight prick of guilt in her conscience as she realizes that Joseph is more righteous than her. She desires to play the harlot among household slaves in betrayal of a husband who has provided everything for her. So now Joseph, before the object of her affection, now becomes the object of her wrath. So with a piece of Joseph's clothing in hand, she calls the other man of the house. And she makes a false report that Joseph advanced on her unwillingly. Now the hypocrisy here is astounding. It has been Potiphar's wife this whole time who had wanted Joseph to lie with her, and he had refused every time. And yet she will destroy Joseph by claiming that he did the same thing. It's not entirely dissimilar to Judah's hypocrisy that we saw in chapter 38. He goes out and hires a prostitute, but when Tamar is accused of prostitution, he demands that she be brought out and burned. So Potiphar's wife makes this false accusation first to the men of the house and then to her husband when he comes home. 
And of course, though clearly it is her treachery and attempts at seduction and adultery that brought this evil, of course, Potiphar will believe his wife over a foreign slave. In fact, note how repeatedly she brings out in her accusation that he is a Hebrew. You brought this Hebrew here and look what he has done. Because Joseph is a foreign slave, it's his word against hers. He has no particular rights or standing. Even though he is innocent, he is going to suffer. And so Potiphar has him thrown into prison where he will spend the next several years. Of course, it just happens to be the prison where the king's prisoners go, and that will matter later, but not yet for now. So we have seen in this passage how Joseph so powerfully withstood temptation, how he was an unrighteous man, or how he was a righteous man in an unrighteous land, and he did the right thing when it mattered the most. For perhaps the first time in Genesis, it, it almost looks like we have our true hero, our true upright man who does what is right instead of turning aside to sin and temptation. But what does Joseph's righteousness get him? Well, in worldly terms, it gets him a prison cell in a strange country where he has very little hope of ever seeing the light of day again. But Joseph is not the last man in Scripture to undergo such a thing. I mentioned earlier Jesus' temptations and how he endured them, how he never sinned even once against God's law, not by his thoughts or his words or his deeds. This had not been true of any other person in the history of the world, even including Joseph. But what did that righteousness get Jesus? Well, the very people who were supposed to be the teachers of God's word, the religious leaders of God's people, they formed a conspiracy against him. They could not bear to be with him any longer, just as Potiphar's wife could not bear having Joseph around any longer. He was too much a reminder of their own sin and unrighteousness and how they were not what they should be. And so Jesus' enemies, rather than turn from their sin, they chose to punish the one who revealed it to them. And so just as Joseph's righteousness earned him a jail cell, Jesus' righteousness earned him a Roman cross and a tomb. And just as it might have been thought that Joseph was out of the way, never to be heard from again, Jesus was thought to be out of the way never to be heard from again. I mean, he wasn't just in jail, he was dead. And yet the irony of it all is that in Jesus' unjust suffering, which he willingly endured, he accomplished the redemption of all his people from the beginning of the world to its end, including Joseph, including some of those who crucified him including all these immoral men we've seen throughout Genesis. Though it was a great evil and injustice that put Jesus to death, it was all according to God's good purposes for the help and salvation of his people. I mentioned earlier the providence of God and how it is for the good of his people, but that doesn't just refer to the good things, it refers to the bad and the evil things too. 
even those work for God's glory and the good of his people. What about Joseph? Well, his story isn't done either. Might seem like he's about to be confined to despair and hopelessness and death, but God is still with him. God still has plans to turn this evil for good, not just for Joseph, but ultimately for the help and salvation of all of his people. Of course, you'll have to come back next time to hear more of that. So what do we do with this passage? Maybe you can relate to Joseph's suffering. Maybe you have stood for righteousness, for the truth of God's word, for fidelity to his law, and for it you suffered. You were penalized. You were punished. You lost something near and dear to you. Know that it is not a loss. It is not wasted, ultimately. Though this world might do horrible things to God's people, though it does these great injustices, at the judgment seat of God, all things will be made right. And though we suffer for a time in this life for righteousness' sake, our reward and inheritance and hope is in glory. And it is in the presence of God for all eternity where we will be. So if we suffer now, even for righteousness sake, we are not forsaken. God is with us and God will deliver us. Of course, none of us, Joseph included, are as righteous as our Lord Jesus Christ. We are all fallen sinners, but he never sinned. And yet he suffered and died so that we might be saved. He was raised from the dead so that we might live forever. Joseph's righteous, sorry, Joseph's righteous suffering is a shadow, a picture of the truly righteous servant who suffered for us. Through his suffering comes our salvation. Through his bearing of punishment comes our righteousness. Through the violence done to him comes our peace. So those who by faith receive Christ have life and hope and help in him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ who suffered in our place, though he, like Joseph, and more so than Joseph, was perfectly righteous. He kept the law in our place. He paid the penalty for our sins so that all who by faith receive and rest on him might be saved. Pray that you would write this gospel truth on our hearts, that you would assure us of the salvation we have in you. And also when temptation comes upon us, as it often does in this world, pray that you would give us the grace to stand that we would resist temptation, that we would stand for righteousness even when it is costly, knowing that you are with us and for us and you work all things for your glory and for our good. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. 
That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.